Section 2 of Lady in the Fox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Callahan. Lady into Fox by David Garnett. Section 2. In the morning, when he woke up, they had the place to themselves, for on his instructions the servants had all left first thing. Janet and the cook to Oxford, where they would try and find new places, and Nanny going back to the cottage near Tangley, where her son lived, who was the pigman there. So with that morning there began what was now to be their ordinary life together. He would get up when it was broad day, and first thing light the fire downstairs and cook the breakfast, then brush his wife, sponge her with a damp sponge, then brush her again, in all this using scent very freely to hide somewhat her rank odor. When she was dressed he carried her downstairs, and they had their breakfast together. She, sitting up to the table with him, drinking her saucer of tea and taking her food from his fingers, or at any rate being fed by him. She was still fond of the same food that she had been used to before her transformation, a lightly boiled egg or slice of ham, a piece of buttered toast or two, with a little quince and apple jam. While I am on the subject of her food, I should say that reading in the encyclopedia he found that foxes on the continent are inordinately fond of grapes and that during the autumn season they abandon their ordinary diet for them, and then grow exceedingly fat and lose their offensive odor. This appetite for grapes is so well confirmed by Aesop and by passages in the scriptures that it is strange Mr. Tebrick should not have known it. After reading this account, he wrote to London for a basket of grapes to be posted to him twice a week, and was rejoiced to find that the account in the encyclopedia was true in the most important of these particulars. His vixen relished them exceedingly, and seemed never to tire of them, so that he increased his order first from one pound to three pounds, and afterward to five. Her odor abated so much by this means that he came not to notice it at all except sometimes in the mornings before her toilet. What helped most to make living with her bearable for him was that she understood him perfectly, yes, every word he said and though she was dumb, she expressed herself very fluently by looks and signs, though never by the voice. Thus he frequently conversed with her, telling her all his thoughts and hiding nothing from her, and this the more readily because he was very quick to catch her meanings and her answers. Puss, puss, he would say to her, for calling her that had been habit with him always. Sweet puss, some men would pity me living alone here with you after what has happened but I would not change places while you were living with any man for the whole world. Though you are a fox, I would rather live with you than any woman. I swear I would, and that too if you were changed to anything. But then, catching her grave look, he would say, Do you think I jest on these things, my dear? I do not. I swear to you, my darling, that all my life I will be true to you, will be faithful, will respect and reverence you who are my wife and I will do that not because of any hope that God in his mercy will see fit to restore your shape, but solely because I love you. However you may be changed, my love is not. Then anyone seeing them would have sworn that they were lovers, so passionately did they look on each other. Often he would swear to her that the devil might have power to work some miracles, but that he would find it beyond him to change his love for her. These passionate speeches, however they might have struck his wife in an ordinary way, now seemed to be her chief comfort. She would come to him, put her paw in his hand, and look at him with sparkling eyes shining with joy and gratitude, would pant with eagerness, jump at him, and lick his face. Now he had many little things which bruised him in the house, 
getting his meals, setting the room straight, making the bed, and so forth. When he was doing this housework, it was comical to watch his vixen. Often she was at it were beside herself with vexation and distress to see him in his clumsy way, doing what she could have done so much better had she been able. Then, forgetful of the decency and the decorum which she had first imposed upon herself, never to run upon all fours, she followed him everywhere, and if he did one thing wrong, she stopped him and showed him the way of it. When he had forgot the hour for his meal, she would come and tug at his sleeve and tell him as if she spoke, "'Husband, are we to have no luncheon to-day?' This womanliness in her never failed to delight him, for it showed she was still his wife, buried, as it were, in the carcass of a beast, but with a woman's soul. This encouraged him so much that he debated with himself whether he should not read aloud to her, as he had often done formerly. At last, since he could find no reason against it, he went to the shelf and fetched down a volume of The History of Clarissa Harlow, which he had begun to read aloud to her a few weeks before. He opened the volume where he had left off, with Lovelace's letter after he had spent the night waiting fruitlessly in the copse. Good God! What is now to become of me? My feet benumbed my midnight wanderings through the heaviest dews that ever fell, my wig and my linen dripping with the hoar-frost dissolving on them, day but just breaking, etc. While he read, he was conscious of holding her attention. Then, after a few pages, the story claimed all his, so that he read on for about half an hour without looking at her. When he did so, he saw that she was not listening to him, but was watching something with strange eagerness. Such a fixed, intent look was on her face that he was alarmed and sought the cause of it. Presently he found that her gaze was fixed on the movements of her pet dove which was in its cage hanging in the window. He spoke to her, but she seemed displeased, so he laid Clarissa Harlow aside. Nor did he ever repeat the experiment of reading to her. Yet that same evening, as he happened to be looking through his writing-table drawer, with Puss beside him looking over his elbow, she spied a pack of cards, and then he was forced to pick them out to please her, then draw them from their case. At last, trying first one thing, then another, he found that she was able to play piquet with him. They had some difficulty at first in contriving for her to hold her cards and then to play them, but this was at last overcome by his stacking them up for her on a sloping board, after which she could flip them out very neatly with her claws as she wanted to play them. When they had overcome this trouble, they played three games, and most heartily she seemed to enjoy them. Moreover, she won all three of them. After this, they often played a quiet game of piquet together, and cribbage, too, I should say that in marking the points at cribbage on the board he always moved her pegs for her as well as his own, for she could not handle them or set them in the holes. The weather, which had been damp and misty, with frequent downpours of rain, improved very much in the following week, and, as often happens in January, there were several days with the sun shining, no wind, and light frosts at night these frosts becoming more intense as the days went on, till by and by they began to think of snow. With this spell of fine weather, it was but natural that Mr. Tebrick should think of taking his vixen out of doors. This was something he had not yet done, both because of the damp rainy weather up till then, and because the mere notion of taking her out filled him with alarm. Indeed, he had so many apprehensions beforehand that at one time he resolved totally against it for his mind was filled not only with the fear that she might escape from him and run away, which he knew was groundless, but with more rational visions such as wandering curs, traps, gins, spring guns, 
besides a dread of being seen with her by the neighborhood. At last, however, he resolved on it, and all the more as his vixen kept asking him in the gentlest way, might she not go out into the garden? Yet she always listened very submissively when he told her that he was afraid if they were seen together it would excite the curiosity of the neighbors. Besides this, he often told her of his fears for her on account of dogs. But one day she answered this by leading him to the hall and pointing boldly to his gun. After this he resolved to take her, though with full precautions. That is, he left the house door open so that in case of need she could beat a swift retreat. Then he took the gun under his arm, and lastly he had her well wrapped up in a little fur jacket lest she should take cold. He would have carried her too, but that she delicately disengaged herself from his arms and looked at him very expressively to say that she would go by herself. For already her first horror of being seen to go upon all fours was worn off, reasoning no doubt upon it that either she must resign herself to go that way or else stay bedridden all the rest of her life. Her joy at going into the garden was inexpressible. First she ran this way, then that, though keeping always close to him, looking very sharply with ears cocked forward first at one thing, then another, and then up to catch his eye. For some time, indeed, she was almost dancing with delight, running around him, then forward a yard or two, then back to him and gambling beside him as they went round the garden. But in spite of her joy, she was full of fear. At every noise, a cow lowing, a cock crowing, or a plowman in the distance hallowing to scare the rooks, she started, her ears pricked to catch the sound, her muzzle wrinkled up and her nose twitched, and she would press herself against his legs. They walked round the garden and down to the pond where there were ornamental waterfowl, teal, widgeon, and mandarin ducks, and seeing these again gave her great pleasure. They had always been her favorites, and now she was so overjoyed to see them that she behaved with very little of her usual self-restraint. First she stared at them, then bouncing up to her husband's knee, sought to kindle an equal excitement in his mind. Whilst she rested her paws on his knee, she turned her head again and again toward the ducks, as though she could not take her eyes off them, and then ran down before him to the water's edge. But her appearance threw the ducks into the utmost degree of consternation. Those on shore near the bank swam or flew to the center of the pond, and there huddled in a bunch, and then, swimming round and round, they began such a quacking that Mr. Tebrick was nearly deafened. As I have said before, nothing in the ludicrous way that arose out of the metamorphosis of his wife, and such incidents were plentiful, ever stood a chance of being smiled at by him. So in this case, too, for realizing that the silly ducks thought his wife a fox indeed, and were alarmed on that account, he found painful that spectacle which to others might have been amusing. Not so his vixen, who appeared, if anything, more pleased than ever when she saw in what a commotion she had set them, and began cutting a thousand pretty capers. Though at first he called to her to come back and walk another way, Mr. Tebrick was overborne by her pleasure and sat down, while she frisked about him happier far than he had seen her ever since the change. First she ran up to him in a laughing way, all smiles, and then she ran down again to the water's edge and began frisking and frolicking, chasing her own brush, dancing on her hind legs even, and rolling on the ground, then fell to running in circles, but all this without paying any heed to the ducks. But they, with their necks craned out, all pointing one way, swam to and fro in the middle of the pond, never stopping their quack, 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 and keeping time, too, for they all quacked in chorus. 
Presently she came further away from the pond, and he, thinking they had had enough of this sort of entertainment, laid hold of her and said to her, "'Come, Sylvia, my dear, it is growing cold, and it is time we went indoors. I am sure taking the air has done you a world of good, but we must not linger any more.' She appeared then to agree with him, though she threw half a glance over her shoulder at the ducks, and they both walked soberly enough toward the house. When they had gone about half-way, she suddenly slipped round and was off. He turned quickly and saw the ducks had been following them, so she drove them before her back into the pond, the ducks running in terror from her with their wings spread, and she not pressing them, for he saw that had she been so minded she could have caught two or three of the nearest. Then, with her brush waving above her, she came gambling back to him so playfully that he stroked her indulgently, though he was first vexed, and then rather puzzled that his wife should amuse herself with such pranks. But when they got within doors, he picked her up in his arms, kissed her, and spoke to her. "'Sylvia, what a light-hearted, childish creature you are! Your courage under misfortune shall be a lesson to me, but I cannot, I cannot bear to see it.' Here the tears stood suddenly in his eyes, and he laid down upon the ottoman and wept, paying no heed to her until presently he was aroused by her licking his cheek in his ear. After tea she led him to the drawing-room and scratched at the door till he opened it, for this was part of the house which he had shut up, thinking three or four rooms enough for them now, and to save the dusting of it. Then it seemed she would have him play to her on the pianoforte. She led him to it, nay, what is more, she would herself pick out the music he was to play. First it was a fugue of Handel's, then one of Mendelssohn's songs without words, and then the diver, and then music from Gilbert and Sullivan. But each piece of music she picked out was gayer than the last one. Thus they sat happily engrossed for perhaps an hour in the candlelight until the extreme cold in the unwarmed room stopped his playing and drove them downstairs to the fire. Thus did she admirably comfort her husband when he was dispirited. End of section 2